Good morning. Yesterday, I was reading a prophetic tweet that said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, and the technology won't work. <laughs> but uh, the nice thing about preaching is life, right? So unless the Lord takes me in the next hour, I won't disappear. First Samuel 4. First Samuel chapter 4. One of the great benefits of the Old Testament is that it so often, at least in my own experience, focuses us as the people of God on things that are most essential and most critical. The most fundamental aspects of the gospel is often the primary point of an Old Testament story or of an Old Testament set of stories. And one of the ways that we see what God is doing in the Old Testament isn't just by looking at all the little micro stories in the Old Testament, but by sometimes weaving all of those stories together, together, getting, getting a big picture, a sense of what God is doing in Israel's history. So we're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning, four chapters, first Samuel four and five and six and seven, but I hope it's worth it. So turn with me to Samuel four, first Samuel chapter four. Just to give you a little context as to what's going on in this passage, this story represents a transition moment, a hinge in Israel's life. In these four chapters, four, five, six, and seven, we're essentially going to walk through what is probably Israel's darkest hour, their lowest point in their history up until this moment. And I think we can miss that sometimes because as we continue to read, the exile looms so large as the darkest moment in Israel's history. But if you were just reading the Bible chronologically, when you came to this point, this is Israel's lowest hour. And yet at the end of this story, there's new life. The end of this story represents new beginnings, the blossoming of covenant blessing and restored hope. Right. To use an old timey Baptist word. This story is about revival. This story is a story of true revival. Israel's situation in first Samuel four is not good. The spiritual and political climate of the day is essentially the same thing as we get in the book of Judges. Okay, if you've read the book of Judges, you know that Israel is in a bad state in the book of Judges. And the refrain that we see over and over and over again in that book is that there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Well, it's the same thing here at the beginning of first Samuel. There is no king in Israel. David has not yet appeared. First Samuel three, one summarizes Israel's spiritual state. Just these few little words. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. That's an amazing statement because in the Bible, the word is tied to God's spirit and it's what produces life. And so if the word of the Lord is rare, there's no life. One of the main themes that we see developing in these early chapters of first Samuel is the failure of Israel at every level, the failure of Israel's leadership, particularly its religious leadership, the priests, the nation is corrupt from the top down. Eli, the high priest is corrupt. He's foolish. He's indifferent. His incompetence in the first chapter leads him to persecute a godly woman like Hannah. And Samuel goes so far as to describe Eli with language that he later uses to describe the Philistines. 
It's as if as it is as if a Philistine is in the highest religious office of the land. And then on top of that, you have Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas. These men are the heir apparents to the highest religious office in Israel. And look what the Bible says about them. For Samuel 2.12, they were worthless men and did not know the Lord. That's pretty scathing. But Israel's people don't fare any better. It's not that the it's not that the leadership is corrupt, but the people are doing well. The people aren't any. First Samuel shows us that the people of Israel are faithless. They are living in open rebellion to God. The nation is spiritually dead. Idols dominate the people's affections. And the very, very few godly people that are actually left in society are suffering and are persecuted. So this is Israel at its worst. This is the lowest of the low, the worst condition they've ever been in. If you if you put this on some sort of line graph and you were charting Israel's spiritual health, this moment is a moment of plummet. They've never been lower than this. This isn't just spiritual recession. This is spiritual depression. So the question, of course, when things get bad, is what's going to happen? Or, more biblically, what's God going to do? Given the state of things, what will God do in Israel? Or maybe another question we should ask is, what might we expect God to do? Well, if you've been reading consecutively through Scripture, you would have some expectations. Because you would have read Deuteronomy 28. You would have read the covenant stipulations between Israel and God. You would know that Deuteronomy 28 says... That if Israel disobeyed, if they rebelled against God, if they worshipped idols, he would send in a foreign army to afflict them. And ultimately, if they continued to disobey and they continued to worship idols, he would send them into exile. Like he did with Adam from the garden, he would banish them to a foreign land. So is this Israel's fate? How does God give new life to a people as disobedient as this. What's the main point of these four chapters? Let me give it to you. I think the main point of these chapters is this. Trust patiently. Trust patiently in God. And be steadfast in repentance. As he fulfills his promises. And accomplishes his work. In his time. And in his way, that's the main point. Okay, I'm arguing that's the thesis of these four chapters. Trust patiently in God and be steadfast in repentance every day as he fulfills his promises and accomplishes his work in his way. So point number one, point number one, repent of good luck charms religion. Repent of good luck charms religion. Look at first Samuel chapter four, verse one. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek and the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines. 
who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Brothers and sisters, it's so easy to pass over these numbers without really getting a sense of the horror that they convey. In a single day, the Philistines slaughtered 4,000 Israelites. Friends, on 9-11, 2,977 Americans died. And we're still feeling the impact of it. The bloodiest day in American history was the Battle of Antietam, when roughly 3,600 Americans died. And on this day, 4,000 Israelite husbands and daddies and uncles and nephews were on the other end of a Philistine spear. Continues in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought it from there, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, they were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The Israelites, in the face of 4,000 dead soldiers, they don't repent. They don't turn to the Lord. They don't put their idols away. Instead, what they do is they call for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought into the camp. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was the piece of furniture that resided in the Holy of Holies. And according to Exodus 25, the, the Ark is, in some sense, the heart of the sanctuary. This, this is the visible symbol of God's presence on earth. You might even say that it's, it's God's very throne on earth for the Israelites. And Samuel describes that the elders of Israel are calling for the ark to be brought into the camp. But I don't think he means for us to see this as a sign of genuine repentance, as we're going to see that they do later. Because there's no mention of them putting away their gods. There's no mention of actual repentance. I don't think Israel is turning to God in this story. They're not putting away their idols. It seems they are treating the ark like a good luck charm. This is their lucky rabbit's foot. This is their magical talisman. 
their trust is fundamentally misplaced in the symbol of God's presence. It's not in God himself. The people of Israel celebrate so loudly at the coming of the ark that the Philistines are afraid. Right? Israel is so enamored with the ark that their adrenal response to seeing it frightens the victorious Philistine soldiers. But friends, what's the result? 30,000. 30,000 soldiers of Israel die. Friends, that's more than 10 times the number of Americans killed on 9-11. And even more than that, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, the centerpiece of the tabernacle, the throne of God on earth for the Israelites, the foundation of this new hope that they have of conquering the Philistines, it is captured and put in a cart and carted off into Ashdod, into Philistine territory. So friends, what do we see in this? What might we learn from this story? Well, first, I think it shows us, brothers and sisters, don't put your trust in anything but God himself. Don't trust in anything but God himself. No lucky charm, no religious practice, no amount of personal ingenuity can ultimately deliver the type of security, whether it's temporal or eternal, that we might be seeking. Brothers and sisters, what, what are you looking to this week, in the coming week, as a good luck charm, your personal rabbit's foot, your personal Ark of the Covenant? You know, for many of us, it's not going to be some sort of physical object, what we typically think of as good luck charms, but all of us have some sort of good luck charm in our life. Do you feel secure in God's love because you were baptized? Do you feel secure in God's love because you're a member of a church? Do you feel optimistic about your future because of how well you did in your devotions this week? See, all those things are good, but they are meant to feed faith in God himself, not become the object of our faith. The leaders of Israel are doing this very thing. And you can notice there's something even kind of right and maybe even kind of good about them calling for the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark often accompanied the soldiers of Israel on the path to great military victory, as it did in the book of Joshua. But Israel isn't bringing the Ark into the camp because of faith in God, but because they have faith in the Ark. They've taken this good thing from God, and instead of letting it lead them to God in greater faith, they are making it the object of their faith. And friends, we do this all the time. We can even take our right, good theological convictions and make them the hallmark of our identity. Rather than seeing how those right, good theological convictions are meant to more fully lead us to know the wonder and the beauty of God himself. Friends, if you don't identify as a Christian and you're visiting at Heritage this morning, the question is not whether you have some sort of good luck charm, some sort of lucky rabbit's foot in your life. The question is, what is it? Because you do have one. You do have one. What are you looking to? What's, what's, what's your thing that when you have it makes you feel secure? Right? This is shameful for me to say. But there is a number in my bank account that when I hit makes me feel 
more secure in life than when I'm not hitting it. Why did you come to church today? Is it to earn brownie points with God? To make you feel more secure about your future? Friends, do you feel secure in life because of the number in your bank account? Or because the amount of nice, sweet family you have? Friends, all those are wonderful things. But none of those things can deliver a future. None of those things can deliver security. Friends, if you put your ultimate trust in anything but the Lord himself, then the results are disastrous. Look at how this chapter develops. In verses 12 to 18, the author tells us the news of the ark's capture causes Eli, the high priest, to be so stricken with grief that he falls over and breaks his neck. Then in verses 19 to 22... The newly widowed wife of Phineas the priest is so despondent, interestingly, not over her husband's death, but over the capture of the ark, that she names her own son something horrible. Let's look at this in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth. For her pains came upon her, and about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. And we lose a sense of just how horrible this is. We, we lose a sense of just how horrible the name Ichabod really is because we, we, we don't you know, speak Hebrew. But as the author says, it means here literally the glory has departed or, or even more literally no glory. So this isn't just a cry of anguish. That name announces to the world that Israel has reached a new low. Okay, to, 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 to capture in the modern day the, the sense that this name conveys, this would be like naming your son Holocaust. This name expresses the deep anguish of a country in the throes of its own implosion. Their ark is gone God has left. The presence of God has been taken from them. It's as if the throne of Yahweh himself has been toppled. So this brings us to point two. Point two. Be amazed at the glory and the wonder of God's substitutionary work. Be amazed at the glory and the wonder of God's substitutionary work. Chapter 5 changes the setting. We're moving away from Israel to Philistia, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. We're leaving Israel and we are following the trail of the supposedly triumphant Philistines. Look at the beginning of verse 5, chapter 5, I mean. 
5.1, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God, the God of Israel there. But after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic through the whole city and the hand of God was heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. By placing the ark of the covenant In the temple of Dagon, the Philistines are making a theological statement. In some sense, this whole war was theological. I think one of the reasons that the Philistines are attacking Israel at Ebenezer is because that's on the road to Shiloh where the tabernacle was. They're going to try to take the tabernacle, I think. So they capture the Ark of the Covenant and they bring it to the temple of Dagon. They are making a theological point. They are viewing this battle not just as Israel versus Philistia. They are viewing this as a conflict of the gods. Which god is stronger, Dagon or Yahweh? And the Philistines capture the ark and they bring it to Dagon's temple as a sign of Yahweh's defeat. Yahweh's ark is just one more trophy in the hall of defeated deities in the temple of Dagon. But then... This supposedly defeated Yahweh shows his power in the very temple, the very fortress of Dagon's power. When the priests awake, they find Dagon prostrate before Yahweh. So they got to set him up. And then the next day, they find Dagon's not only prostrate before Yahweh, but his head and his hands have been cut off. And the implication of that is clear. This idol has no real power. Right? Hands in the in the ancient world, and even we see often in scripture, are symbols of strength and authority. 
All throughout the Bible, you have references to God accomplishing his will by his hand. So when Dagon's hands are chopped off, this is a statement about his powerlessness. And the irony is really hard to miss here, isn't it? Israel failed to defeat the Philistines, but Yahweh is literally causing the Philistine God to disintegrate in his presence. The Philistine, the Philistines think Dagon has the upper hand, all the while Yahweh is showing Dagon has no hands at all. Do you notice it in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 9 and 11, this refrain that's used over and over again? Dagon's hands are cut off, but verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Or verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there's deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was heavy there. So not only is Yahweh defeating Dagon, he is destroying the Philistine people themselves, not only in this chapter, but all of the next chapter. All of chapter 6 chronicles how the Ark of the Covenant moves from city to city to city, essentially wiping out the Philistines with plagues. Till they say what they said at the end of this chapter. Get rid of this thing. Send this thing back to Israel. This thing's going to kill us. So friends, what's happening here? What, what's the point of the author of Samuel telling us this story? I think one of the most important questions we can ask is who is the main character of first Samuel four, five and six? Who is the main actor? And it's actually a little surprising. See, in the first chapters of Samuel, the main character are is, is the person or the people you might expect them to be. It's Eli. It's Hannah. It's Samuel. But they're nowhere in these chapters. And the only mention of Eli is him toppling over and breaking his neck. The recurring main character in this story is the Ark of the Covenant. Which means that the main character of this story is Yahweh himself. Yahweh is the main actor. These chapters are about what God is doing for Israel. And do you see what he is doing? Israel is under God's judgment. Israel is experiencing the covenant curses. The nation is slipping further and further and further into disobedience and idolatry. So just as God warned, he sends a foreign nation to afflict them and destroy them just as he said he would. And with the state of Israel being what it is, with the state of things, you would expect that God would do what he warned in Deuteronomy 28. He would send these people into exile. He would banish them into a foreign land. But it's not what he does. Instead, Yahweh himself, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, goes into Exile. It's as if Yahweh is taking the place of Israel. He is in Ashdod. He is substituting himself for the people. And there in Ashdod, outside the borders of Israel, in the temple of Dagon, in apparent weakness, Yahweh defeats Israel's enemies. 
in that place of apparent defeat, Yahweh destroys the Philistines and does for Israel what it could not do for itself. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of how God saves us. This is what Jesus does for us. We are the Israelites in this story. We've put our hope in good luck charms, in religion, in ourselves, and we are under God's condemnation. The covenant curses of judgment have our names written on them, but God substitutes himself for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't go into exile. Christ goes into exile for us. We do not suffer the curse of judgment. Christ suffers those curses for us on Calvary. When on the cross, he suffers God's wrath in our place. Substitution. And there, in that moment of apparent weakness, in that moment of apparent defeat, Christ conquers the demonic forces and the powers that afflicted us and held us captive to all of our own tiny little idols. Look at how Colossians puts it. Colossians 2, 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set all of this aside, nailing it to the cross. And what's the result? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Friends, the story of the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of how God saves his people by entering into the curse of the covenant in their place and from that location conquering their enemies. So let me just apply this in a few ways. First, if you're visiting Heritage and you're exploring Christianity, I just want to encourage you that what you most need to understand about Christianity is this point. This is what you need to think about. The most fundamental belief of Christianity is that even though we were deserving of God's judgment, God sent his own son to be our substitute. He comes to take our judgment to bear the wrath that we deserved. And we in turn are delivered from our sin and our idols, which cannot deliver. They cannot deliver on their promises of happiness. Christianity is fundamentally about a person, Jesus Christ, the son of God, saving us by substituting himself for the punishment that we deserve. As I heard one preacher put it this week, Christianity is fundamentally not about an airtight argument, but it is about an airtight person. It's about a person. It's not a philosophical conviction about certain moral issues. But like this story, it's about what God does in history to save his people through the work of Jesus. And what you need to do is respond to that. You need to respond to that. Whatever Dagon you have in your life, right? whether it's money, or power, or authority, or security, or family, or comfort, it's not going to last. It's not. And friend, if it doesn't get taken away from you this year, or next year, or ten years from now, it will eventually get taken away. Eventually, that idol will not deliver on its promises. So what I want to ask you to do is come to Jesus. You should repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. And friend, if you don't do that today, then when those things do happen... When those things that you hold dear are stripped away or you see them going to be stripped away, I hope you think about this sermon. I hope you think about this place and where you were at. And I hope you come back so we can tell you more about Jesus. 
Friends, this story is just, it is, it is a faint picture. It's a beautiful picture, but man, it's faint. It is a shadow compared to God's grace for us in Christ. If you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, my application to you is to be amazed at this. That's why my point was be amazed at the wonder and beauty of substitution. My application is be amazed. Be amazed at the glory and wonder of God's self-substitution in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, when was the last time you were amazed at substitutionary atonement? Not the last time you affirmed it or the last time you argued for it. When was the last time you were amazed at substitutionary atonement? Brothers and sisters, this one great truth should be the great heavy reality that weighs on you every day. That Christ, the Son of God, died for as a substitute. That's what for means. For us. And this may not seem like such a profound application, but our most fundamental sin problems are ultimately rooted in a, to, in a failure to trust and to glory in the self-substitution of God. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you. Do, do you realize that this very point that I'm making right now is one of the reasons God created the local church and church membership? Because we, needed, we need to be reminded of these things. We need to hear this gospel message proclaimed not just from the pulpit, but from the mouths of your 200 brothers and sisters that you're interacting with and caring for and loving and praying with every day throughout the week. So that leads us to point three. Point three, trust, trust God's faithful, but often slow and imperceptible work. In your ministry. Trust God's faithful but often slow and imperceptible work in your ministry. I tried to find a different word from ministry because ministries, like I don't know how it's used in this church, but in many churches it's been professionalized so that that's what the pastors do. But that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how Paul uses that term, right? It's the job of the pastors and the leaders of the church to equip the congregation for the work of the ministry. You guys are faithfully fulfilling an office of ministry to one another and to the world. So that's what I'm talking about. Trust God's faithful but often slow and imperceptible work in your ministry. Chapter 7. The ark returns to Israel. And notice in this passage, Israel's situation completely inverts from what we read in chapter 4. It's amazing. Chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came. And took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord. And serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth 
And they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. In chapter 4, the Israelites' great confidence and shouts at the coming of the Ark of the Covenant. They see the Ark, and remember it says they shout so loud that the earth thunders. And in this chapter, the author tells us that they weep for 20 years over probably the loss of 34,000 people. But perhaps some of it is genuine repentance. In fact, the weeping by the end of that 20 years certainly seems to lead to genuine repentance. At the end of that 20 years, Israel puts away its idols. The bells and the astroth. See that in verse 4? They serve the Lord only. And the rest of this chapter shows us how the Lord routes the Philistines and gives Israel the victory. And you notice just the neat. I love the Old Testament. It's amazing. It's the neat way that the story is completely inverted in all the details. Right. In chapter four, it's the Israelites who thunder and shout. But in this chapter, it's the Lord himself who thunders and has a mighty shout. In chapter four, a child of Israel is named Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. But this time around, they set up an altar to the Lord and call it Ebenezer. The Lord has helped us. Friends, what do we learn from that juxtaposition? What do we learn from comparing Israel's failure in the fourth chapter and God's success in chapter seven? Let me just draw three applications from this and then we'll conclude. Number one. And I think this is especially directed to people who were born in my generation. Okay, if if you're a millennial, I'm sorry. Sorry you had to be born in this generation. It's It's not a good one. Let's just say if you're under 40. Not all of you, but maybe some of you and probably some of you above 40. 
But some of you in this room are going to be very susceptible to a certain type of misplaced faith. The type of faith we see in chapter 4. And what I mean by that is, you know, as I go to a church that has a lot of young people in it, and as I work in an office that has a lot of young Christians and students roaming through it, I find that younger Christians are constantly on the hunt for hype, for some sort of adrenal religious experience, something exciting, something, something that guarantees and assures the results that we're looking for, something with the scent of, of novelty, that we, we crave the spectacular. Bring in the Ark of the Covenant. Right? Let's, let's have a shout so loud that the Philistines fear. Can you imagine the conversations that are happening between Samuel and the Philistine military leaders? The commanders are saying, bring in the ark. Let's get some hype in here. Let's get some shouts. And Samuel's quietly in the background saying, I, I think we should just spend several years repenting for sin. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You're not going to defeat the Philistines with that type of attitude. But the same thing happens today. Same thing happens today. You know, brothers and sisters, what if, what if I stood up and said to you as, as your candidate for lead pastor, my vision for the next two decades of heritage is that we quietly lament over our sin. No one's going to give me a book deal with that type of philosophy of ministry. But brothers and sisters, that is what I'm saying. That is my philosophy of ministry. That my hope for this church, whether you call me or not, whether you call someone else, is that this church and that every church daily walks in the simplicity, the glorious gospel simplicity of faith and repentance. Right? Not seeking out some sort of new adrenal emotion filled something that we can all get swept up into. Not advocating for some type of hype but that we faithfully plod every day in faith and repentance. That, brothers and sisters, you faithfully live out your ordinary responsibilities to one another as members of this church. Brothers and sisters, have, this might be the most important thing that you can do as a church member, have a faithful ministry of presence, by which I mean come to the corporate gatherings of the church. Come on Sunday morning and on Wednesday evening. That is the most, one of the most important things you could do as a member of this church. Friends, we cannot, we cannot manufacture the work of the Spirit with our own ingenuity. We can't defeat the Philistines by drumming up a lot of excitement. And if we want to see God's kingdom expand, then we obey Him in faith and repentance. Even when that faith demands that we do things that the rest of the world and maybe even other churches think are counterintuitive. But we simply trust God to do what he's promised, to build his church and realize that it is often agonizingly slow work. Even in the context of this church, as you seek to do gospel ministry to one another, to your community, to your friends, to your neighbors, true reform within and true revival without is not something any of us in this room can manufacture. It's not something any, anyone in this room can engineer. We can labor, we can be faithful, we can be patient, and we trust in the Lord.
Let me give you another application. You know, since that one was for younger believers, maybe, maybe this one's for older believers. I don't know. But if you fall into this category, it's for you. All right? Friends, just as we don't put our trust in whatever we can engineer, we also need to be careful that we don't put our hopes in the success of our gospel ministry in things like this building, the facility, the church budget, or any of the things that just come with the institution of the church. And let me just ask you a basic diagnostic question. How distressed, how anxious would it make you if Heritage Baptist Church had this building taken away from it? Right? Would it panic you a little bit? Would you think that somehow we, we must be failing at gospel ministry? That we wouldn't be able to reach as many people? That the gospel would somehow be impeded? Or maybe even more crassly, that you just might not enjoy church as much? But brothers and sisters, do not put your confidence in the success of the gospel and of Christ's universal church and of this particular local church in any of those things. And let me, let me speak frankly about this for a moment. Set your heart to believe these things now because it's very likely that even within my own lifetime, heritage won't be able to keep on to this building. As the sexual revolution continues to unfold at breakneck speed, churches all over the country won't be able to retain their properties. Churches all over the country won't be able to retain the types of tax exemptions that keep places like this afloat. And it may ultimately just come down to the fact that a culture changes so rapidly around us that Christians aren't given a place in the public square. They're not given a a space in which they're allowed to meet. And friends, if that day comes and we have to start asking questions like, who has the biggest basement where we all can meet or how to retrain people to use the hymnal because we won't have access to projectors and why we have to split into several churches because we can't fit everyone in a single home. The advance of God's kingdom will not experience a single hiccup. It will not be impeded in the slightest. God's spirit doesn't need our help. Whether we have a budget or a building or whether we don't have a budget or a building, the gospel will continue to outpace the church and bring people to Jesus and to his church. Whatever our circumstances, whether it's great wealth as as it is right now, whether it may be great poverty as it might be in the future, our job is to do as these Israelites. Not to generate hype, bring in the Ark of the Covenant, trust in the building, the budget, whatever it may be. Repent of sin. Obey God. Trust in his word. God's spirit will do what he promised, even as we're faithful. Even when faithfulness just looks like nothing more than spending 20 years daily putting away the idols of our lives. Finally, final application. Brothers and sisters, be patient. Trust the Lord in whatever ministry he's given you. Look at Samuel. Look at Samuel in this story. God sends this enormous wake-up call to Israel, doesn't he? He slaughters 34,000 people. You would expect Israel would get the picture, right? You would expect, whoa, repentance, widespread repentance. But that's not what happens, right? Instead, Samuel spends 20 years, 20 years preaching to these people as they slowly emerge into Repentance. And after 20 years of faithful preaching and 20 
years of calling the people to repent and 20 years of weeping. You know what the people do? They start obeying the first commandment. It's not after 20 years that Samuel's a megachurch pastor, right? With his own seminary and just lots and lots of stuff going on around him. He's the head of this great institution. 20 years of work and they start obeying commandment one. Brothers and sisters, be patient and persevere in your work for the Lord. So much of what is bad in our lives and our ministries just comes from an unwillingness to simply be patient and trust that the Lord will work as he's promised. It's, it's why we turn to, to gimmicks or fads or whatever, because we want to engineer the work of the spirit. But we can't. True conversion, true growth and godliness. These are the things of the spirit. So, friends, be patient and be faithful. Be patient and trust God. As you disciple that church member who needs to grow as a Christian, but is headstrong and really prideful and doesn't hear your counsel. Be patient and trust God as you counsel that brother on how to handle his sin, even when he argues with you and criticizes you that you don't understand his situation. Be patient and trust the work of God's spirit, even when the men who show up at your Bible study seem so worldly and so indifferent to the things of God. Be patient and trust the work of God's spirit, parents, as you point your children to Jesus again and again and again. Be patient and be faithful, even in their 70th year when they turn to you and say, Dad, I still just don't believe it. Be patient and trust the work of God's spirit when you share the gospel with that neighbor and invite him to church over and over and over And he's just a blank wall and then perks up when you mention football. Be patient. One of the reasons gospel ministry that we all share in is so difficult is because faith is so difficult. But the Lord designs it to be that way. He designs it to be hard so that we learn more and more to trust in him and his timing and his ways. So that we come to an end of ourselves and our own ingenuity and just simply seek to be faithful. Friends, Israel's future looks really bright in the upcoming chapters. David shows up on the scene. right? And David's reign brings them to new life and new heights. But the transformation, the turning point, the hinge, doesn't come because Israel did so many great things but because God did so many great things for them. The nation transforms not by doing great things, but by repenting of all the bad things that they've done. Brothers and sisters, trust God. Trust him. Trust him even while he works slower than you want. Trust him while he works slower than you might expect him to. But trust him. Because his ways are always better. They're always better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, our great substitute, who by his work on the cross has forgiven us of our sin. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would advance and that we would be faithful to see it advance and to trust that your spirit will do it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.